communicate uh, the truths that are here as I explain uh, what we find as we as we engage with what your spirit has laid out here for us uh, I, I pray that we would not only just read what we see here I, I pray that we would not just hear with our ears and let it pass through but but Lord that each one of us would engage with the word that you've given to us that we would listen that we would obey that our lives would be transformed Father, I pray that you would soften hearts with each one of us. With areas of sin, might you bring us to a point that we would submit to you. For those that don't know you as your Savior, I pray that you would show them your mercy. I pray that your Spirit would illuminate their minds and their hearts to see the grace that you offer to them this morning. I pray that you would use your word to transform each one of us. All this we pray. Amen. Well, if you would turn to 1 Peter with me. If you have not already with our scripture reading, you'll find it in the back of your Bible before Revelation, uh, before the epistles of John. If you've turned to James and Hebrews, then you've gone a little bit too far the other direction. Uh, we read the first epistle of Peter last week, and we discovered that this letter was written to a people who were suffering. In fact, his, his opening address is, is quite unusual. Uh, he doesn't start off with, to the saints who were at Philippi or to the churches of Galatia, or to the brothers at Colossae. Instead, Peter begins this letter with a unique phrase, to those who are elect exiles. This is a letter to a people who were apart. This is a people that, removed, that were removed from their homes, from their communities. They were sojourning in a foreign place. And they were living apart from family members, living apart from the homes that they had known, some of them probably their entire lives. Uh, this last Friday, um, Derek and I drove to Chicago, and we left, we left the wit around 5 a.m., which is, for those of you who know me, that's, that's an atrocious hour. And then we, we drove in two hours of, of fog across Illinois, uh, but then we enjoyed this beautiful day in, in the city. I mean, the clouds parted. Uh, it was blue skies, warm weather. I got to visit my son. I was able to drive along the lake with the windows open, had a great lunch in the cafeteria. Let uh, me rephrase that. Had a great lunch with people in the cafeteria. Um, fried chicken was something else. Um, we all enjoyed some Greek, Greek food for dinner. Met a new friend. And, uh, and then we battled the traffic halfway across Illinois once again. And after 16 hours, I pull up to my house and I, I crashed in bed. My, my wife said to me this morning, she says, you, you barely said hi. I, I, I crashed. It was, it was, I was gone. 
You know, a trip to the city, it can be fun, right? We take a vacation, and we're gone for a week or two, and, and it's a nice way to disconnect, see something different, spend some time in a different way. But at the end of those trips, we come home. I come home. I have a home waiting for me. I have a place to return to, a family that I get to sit down to dinner with, a church that I look forward to gathering with every Sunday. First Peter was written to a group of Christians who had lost all of that. They were taken away to a new place, and then they probably didn't return. And so throughout this epistle, Peter is going to make reference over and over and over again to the suffering that these people were enduring, the suffering that these people were going through. And here in today's passage, he speaks to them as those who have been grieved by various trials. One dictionary captures the word that Peter uses, uh, defines here grief as experiencing sadness or distress, an irritation, vexing, if it's uh, in one form or another. It, it's something that, that causes pain in one's mental, emotional, or physical experience. These are people who are suffering, and they had no place to run home to. They were exiles. Perhaps you've experienced grief that's associated with various kinds of trials. Sometimes trials like these are experienced because of personal loss, the death of a friend, the destruction of a dream. Sometimes your trials come through a loss of health, sometimes physical pain, the loss of your youth. Sometimes your trials come through the, the hurtfulness of people who, who, who treat you in a way that they treat you harshly. They persecute you for your faith or even, even just lash out at you because their heart is dark and they find it necessary to share their despair with you. And so they pour it on. Perhaps you can associate yourself with those who are called elect exiles. You're chosen by God. You're experiencing sanctification, all for obedience to Jesus Christ. But, but as you're walking this path, you, you find yourself in exile who's removed from what's comfortable, removed from, from what is secure, removed from what feels good. Uh, I was reading a commentary uh, on First uh, Peter, an argument of First Peter by Dr. Daniel Wallace earlier, and and he believes that 1 Peter may have even been written during 64 AD when, when Nero's persecution was beginning systematically. That this may not have even just been a, a, a localized persecution that these people were facing, a, a localized uh, amount of suffering. But this may have been Nero's persecution. And it may be possible that, that 1 Peter was written just after the death of the Apostle Paul and a, after he was beheaded to churches that he would have planted or been a part of. And, and then very soon, Peter himself is going to be crucified upside down that very same year. If that's the case, then their grief would have been especially raw and, and injurious, whether it was Paul or other ones that they had lost or different kinds of suffering that they were facing, but on, on top of their own removal from everything that they found to be comfortable, everything that they found associated with security and well-being. And that's why the opening in verse 3 is shocking. Uh, we look at verse 3, and uh, you know, I ask myself, how, how would I begin a letter like this? I, I'm writing to a group of people that are, are suffering. They're going through tragedy. They're going through personal loss. They're, they're suffering from anxiety and, and separation. 
How, how would I start a letter? My condolences. I, I'm so sorry for what you're experiencing. I, I, I just want you to know that our thoughts and prayers are with you during the, the normal greetings that we hear from time to time from letters from different people. But Peter begins the body of his letter with a bold declaration. Listen to what he says to these people that are suffering. He starts off by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Exclamation point. I mean, what, what a bold way to start a letter to, to a people that are suffering and you're writing to them about suffering. And he starts off in verse 3 by praising God and starting with a hymn of thanks. Now that's different, isn't it? Not how we would think to start a letter like this. In fact, verses 3 through 12 express a song of praise to our God that orients our perspective to eternity. He wants the people to see that during their trials, during trials of all these different kinds, that their perspective has to be one that's oriented to eternal things. And during trials of various kinds, 1 Peter is a reminder of the song that you and I have to sing. Not as forgotten outcasts, but as exiles who are just not home yet. Now, don't get the idea that Peter's glossing over their pain. Don't get the idea that as you're reading through 1 Peter and he's addressing your suffering, that he's glossing over your pain either. Peter's not going to offer meaning, meaningless cliches or some empty promise that, that life is going to rain flowers and sunshine tomorrow. Remember that Peter himself is going to approach his own cross in very few short weeks, months, or, or maybe years even. But rather, rather, the song that Peter reminds us to sing is a song about our living hope. And it's a, a living hope that is for all time. I, I loved how Pastor Al, Alistair Begg approached this. He noted, he says, in fact, Peter anticipates. I, I, I loved it with the Scottish accent, but it's just not going to happen, okay, guys? He says, in fact, Peter anticipates that they will get a hold of this to such an extent that there will be occasions when people will actually ask them to give them a reason for the hope that they have. That they will be so defined by being engaged with a hope that stands the test of time that those who don't have that hope, who might wonder at it, will come and ask them about it. Isn't that beautiful, what Peter does here? Friends, your living hope has sprung to life because of what God caused to happen in your past. Your living hope is guarded through faith by a God whose power protects it through the storms of the present. But the heart of the song, which we're going to get to next week, teaches us that today's exile results in exceeding joy for future glory and because you have a living hope that is for all time you have a reason to cry out with job the lord gave and the lord has taken away blessed be the name of the lord with david you have reason to sing i will bless the lord at all times his praise shall continually be in my mouth and with peter you have reason to declare in the midst of your suffering, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look at, at why this is. First, Peter wants us to see that our living hope has sprung to life because of what God caused to happen in your past. Look at verses 3 and 4. 
He starts in the middle of three and says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. And friends, your hope is rooted in what God did. Imagine with me for just a moment, though, how much you would have to look forward to if your hope and your eternity depended not on what God has done, but what you did. Imagine for a moment what, how much you would have to look forward to in eternity if your hope and your eternity depended on what you have done. If all of forever hinged on the moment that you stand before God and he asks you the terrifying question, what did you accomplish in your earthly life that warrants you to enjoy the glory of heaven? you and I would have nothing. There is nothing that we have to offer him that could impress him in any way. And if your eternity depended on some fairy tale that you were just always a good girl or a good boy that really just never got into trouble, of course you're a Christian. If you haven't depended on some fable that you, you were always a Christian, you just kind of got born into the right family. your salvation depended on some delusion that you used to be crazy and wild when you were young but that was yesterday and time has changed me if you believe you've outweighed your evil with some attempt at being good none of these hallucinations have any merit before a god who is holy and just and who pours out his wrath on sin we have nothing, my friends. Understand this. If, if, you, if you've missed this before, if you get nothing from today, understand that we have nothing to offer God that can earn us some kind of eternal retirement. In our sin, we are dead. You understand that term, right? We're dead. And every man and every woman has not only dead in their sins, but we have embraced that death. We have no more power over eternal life than a dead corpse buried six feet under the ground has the power to rise itself from the dead. The Apostle Paul had expressed in Romans, he said it this way, Romans 1, starting in 118, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, it says in verse 21. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. In chapter 3, he goes on and he says, none is righteous. No. Not, not one. No one understands. 
No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then he goes on to say, for all have sinned and have fallen short and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he's passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Amen? Praise be to God. My, my friends, you have a reason to sing, blessed be his name, if you have received this precious gift through Jesus Christ. If by God's grace you have believed upon his son, then you have been declared righteous by a holy God and his wrath has been satisfied because Jesus accomplished what you could never do. He was the good that you and I have never been. And he gave you what you and I could never earn. Peter expresses it this way in his epistle. He says, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Do you hear that? Listen, listen to what he says there. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So understand, first of all, that you are not the cause. You didn't born yourself. How do you say that in proper English, right? You didn't give, bring life to your own self. He did it. He's the cause. You are not the source. You do not have good in you. I, I do not have life to give myself. But God is blessed. God is worthy. He's worthy of your song because he showed you great mercy. You've been born again to a living hope. Not because you or I had power over life, but because you flung yourself at the mercy of a God who does. And he proved it by raising Jesus from the dead. Friends, some of you are here who are still you're reaching out into the darkness. Your hope is in some idea that you might make it. That when you stand before you, you just, maybe you'll get in. Maybe you'll wing it. Maybe you'll be good enough and something will outweigh something else. But, but this is why death terrifies you. Because you have no power to give yourself life. You have no credit to hope for hope. But God offers you his rich and great mercy right now. If you're here today and you've not known this living hope, it is a free gift that you can receive. You don't have to come up and walk an aisle. You don't have to raise a hand. You don't have to say a special prayer. You, you don't have, there's, there's no physical thing. Right now in, in the quietness of your heart, in the seat where you sit, you can receive that gift by putting your faith in his son who died on the cross for your sins. 
This living hope is a free gift if you believe in Jesus who died for you and who can grant you life through his resurrection. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you shall be saved. That is the promise that he gives to you. The optimism that somehow you can earn eternal retirement is empty. But look at the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. See how he describes it in verse 4. It is an inheritance. What's the difference between retirement and an inheritance? You see it? See how it's described here in verse 4? Wages. Wages are something you earn. Retirement is something that you store up. But because mankind has not honored God, and we declared, in fact, we declared war on God with our sin, the only thing that we've stored up or earned for ourselves, the Bible tells us, apart from Christ, is the wrath of God. However, an inheritance is something that is given to you because of your relationship with your Father in heaven. It is according to his great mercy that we're born again, and the Christian has an inheritance that, that changes our eternal perspective. And, and understand, as, you're, as we're going through First Peter, he's going to continue to call them back to this idea that we have to have an eternal perspective. That eternal perspective is based on who you are and what God has done for you in the past and what he's continuing to do in your present. We have an eternal perspective in the midst of the suffering that we go through, the trials that you're experiencing, whether it's loss or sickness or persecution. He describes this inheritance. He says it's an inheritance that's imperishable. Some of you have received an inheritance from your grandparents or from your parents. I have some of my inheritance down in the basement. And I'm going to tell you what, some of it doesn't look too good. That water comes in, you know, and, and floods the basement a little bit, and oh boy. Some of that inheritance I received from others that passed the inheritance on to me, and they didn't take care, such good care of it. Whether it's furniture or, or whatever it might be, you, you know how it works. And it's, it's quite perishable. Some of it lasts a little bit longer than others, but sometimes you receive some stuff that you go, what am I going to do with this? Many of you know what it means for things to perish. They, they just don't last. But our living hope includes an inheritance that never falls apart, that never fades. Our inheritance is also one that's undefiled. Some of you have had some things passed on to you that you didn't want, or, or maybe uh, the inheritance was, was defiled by fighting among family members and the whole process ended up being something that, that just made you sick. Or maybe the inheritance that you received was tarnished by a heavy load of taxes that the government included with your inheritance. The inheritance of our living hope has nothing impure. It's also an inheritance that's unfading. Uh, the word pertains to something that, that loses its pristine quality or character. Uh, flowers, for example. They're beautiful, aren't they? Uh, this year, my wife has made some flowers. It's just been, it's just been beautiful outside. Uh, your favorite you posted about yesterday. What are they called? I know, I owe you ice cream, but calendula. Did I say it right? Beautiful. Amazing. They keep on blooming. We keep on picking them. They keep on coming back. 
But what happens eventually? They fade. They're beautiful, but then they fade. Our living hope is one that endures for eternity. And that's the picture here. We have an inheritance that will never fade away. It's not preserved by a bank. It's not protected by, by questionable investments. Our hope, our inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And the idea is that God preserves it. Your God has taken your inheritance that you have in Jesus Christ and it is kept in heaven. Where is a safer place than that for an inheritance that you have for eternity? And if God is the one who preserves your living hope, if he is the one who preserves your inheritance, then nothing, not even your own failures, not even your sins, can separate you from the love of God. And so your living hope has come about because of what God did for you in the past. But, but also, he, he, well, excuse me, he caused you to be born again through his great mercy. And, and so that leads us again to the idea that he is worthy of your song. Blessed is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but not only has your living hope sprung to life because of what God caused to happen, but your living hope is guarded through faith by a God whose power protects it through the storms of the present. But, but it's more than this. We, we, we just talked about the inheritance and how that inheritance that God has for you is preserved, but it's more than just your inheritance that's guarded. Peter writes, was writing to this group of people who knows what it's like to lose everything. They had an inheritance probably in Rome or somewhere in Italy, and what happened to it? means nothing if if they themselves aren't preserved, they've been shipped off to a foreign country across the sea. As I mentioned last week, it's likely that Peter's not just speaking metaphorically of Christians who are, who are living in a world that's not our home, which, which we are. We're, we're strangers in this world that are passing through. We are sojourners. We are exiles. But, but more than this metaphor, these were quite possibly people who had once lived on the Italian peninsula and they were displaced by the Roman government because the Roman government wanted to move people around in order to keep them from getting too comfortable sometimes if they disagreed with the philosophy of those people or the religion or the faith of these Christians. And so they would move them around, relocate them to a new place where the language and the accent was just a little bit different, where you weren't near your family members and your old friends. And so a lot of these people were moved from various provinces in probably what's modern-day Italy to what's modern-day Turkey. Many had lost their homes. Many of them lost their parents, their children. Many of them had inheritances that were being guarded, but that doesn't do very much for, that, for someone if they themselves are, have not been protected so, they, so that they can enjoy that inheritance. Peter notes that our living hope itself is preserved in heaven for you, but then he goes on to note that you are being guarded. You are guarded by God's power, he says. And note once again who the guarding depends upon. Is it these people that he's writing to? It's their God. Just like we were all dead in our sins and unable to give ourselves eternal life, we, we are also without the power to guard ourselves for what is to come. And so again, Paul wrote, Paul wrote in Philippians, he said, I, I am sure of this. Do you hear that? Do you think he's positive about something when he says, I am sure of this. He, the, he, he who began a good work in you 
will bring it to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. There's no faltering here. I'm confident in it. What he started in you, when you trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, he's going to finish it all the way to the end. It doesn't depend on you. It doesn't depend on your strength and your abilities and you guarding something that God has entrusted to you. There is a part that we play in things, and there is faith, and there is works as we play them out in thanksgiving to Him. But my salvation and my eternity and my hope that is stored in heaven is guarded by my God and His power. All too often we get this crazy idea that, that God saved me in the past, that my justification took place. He has, he has declared me righteous. And we think of salvation in those terms of what's happened in the past. And often we think of what's happened in the future. When I die, I, I'm going to climb to heaven somehow. I'm going to float on clouds. I'm going to put myself there, right? We don't think of those terms. I can't do that. I, I can't raise myself from the grave when the resurrection comes. He does all of that. He raises me from the dead. He's the one that raptures us. He's the one that whatever happens in, the, in between when I'm waiting for my body and my everything else to come back together, I, I, I'm with him instantly and so we think in terms of salvation in the past and, and he did it and, and salvation in the future and he does it but then somehow we get this weird idea that everything in the in-between is somehow my responsibility and that I can do that part <laughs> What? never can I sanctify myself or is that the Holy Spirit's job Somehow I was saved by the work of Jesus, but now I'm going to pick up where he left off? No way. No more than I could give myself life or lift myself up to heaven. If there was a command here to guard myself until the last time, until the last day, I would be as lost as everyone else. But it is our God who guards us. And, and the term that, that, um, that Peter uses here, it's a military term. It's a, a term that you would use for a fortress. Uh, we were on vacation uh, recently, and we went down to Kentucky. And our, on our way back from church, we were heading to Angie's sister's house, and I was sitting up front with my brother-in-law, and um, as we're driving down the highway, he points out the window, and he says, you see that bunker over there, that, that big concrete building and all the fences around it, and it's guarded carefully. There's people, guards within, guards without, and as we drove through Fort Knox, he says, that's where all the gold is at. It's right there off the highway. It's an inconspicuous building. I would have thought that was just a little warehouse. But it's all right there, and it's all a lot more guarded than it looks like from above. That's the picture that, that's used, uh, that Peter uses here. It, it's a military term. There's a fortune of gold stacked inside those walls, but be assured that it's guarded carefully. Fort Knox. And that's the picture that Peter uses of what your inheritance, how your inheritance is guarded, but not only that, how you are guarded by your God's power. You, you found mercy at the cross, and, and you are guarded not by the U.S. Armed Forces, not by your own strength, not by what good you can accomplish, but by God's power. And just like you receive God's mercy through his through faith in his son you also walk by faith as you enjoy the present benefits of his protection and throughout this letter 
Peter's he's going to ground those who are suffering and going through these trials, just as many of you are going through. And he's going to ground them in an eternal perspective. We always have to keep our eyes focused on this eternal perspective, this hope that is laid up for us, a living hope. And he reminds us of what God caused in the past. He affirms what was, what was and who God, <coughs> excuse me, he affirms what and who God is guarding in the present. And all of this is cause for us to bless the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even in the midst of terrible, difficult days. But he's also going to keep anchoring us in the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. My friends, we believe that Jesus could return today, at any moment. Wouldn't it be amazing to watch that happen right well we wouldn't be watching it we'd be part of it i hope you're not watching it we would be longingly waiting for his appearing when he will return and our salvation will be fulfilled jesus will bring the good work that he has began to completion peter's going to develop this in verses seven through nine which we're going to look at next week up to verse 12 but um as we close, note, note what he does in verse 6. It says, The revelation of God's past work and the hope of our future salvation, along with everything that this entails, leads us to rejoice today. Peter writes, In this you rejoice. I have a picture in my head of what that looks like. Uh, I was nine years old. And... Um, we didn't have a lot of money. Um, I think I saw Star Wars at the Chiefs Drive-In and The Fox and the Hound. And I don't think I went to any other movie my entire first 10 years of growing up. We just didn't have money for that sort of thing. Um, no VCRs, no renting stuff. That didn't come until I was 12. And rarely got to do that too. But my friend down the street, Scott, had this cool thing called a, a VCR. And somehow he got a copy of a movie I'd always wanted to see. Christopher Reeves and Superman. It was extraordinary. And we sat down and we watched this amazing film. The guy flies and he can jump over buildings. And it, and it, it was life-changing to me. I'd never seen anything like it. And, and I remember, I, I vividly, I remember the, the George, George, George Lucas, not uh, John Williams, the John Williams theme song. And I remember running home from Scott's house after we watched this movie and I flew all the way down the street with, the street with my, my arms stretched. And I was rejoicing all the way back. And I got home and I said, Dad! It brought life to my soul. I was so excited about it. Watch it again. It's a horrible movie. It's, you know, it's painful. <laughs> How do we put up with that stuff in the 1980s, Right? Man, horrible. I love when I find a movie and it's like, oh, I love this. We watched it when I was in high school. And, you know, Angie, you got to see this. And we, oh, painful. What do we do to ourselves? How, how was that my favorite movie ever? Goonies, what was I thinking? I was so embarrassed. I remember a few years later, my, my cousin... She turned 16, 
and, and we sat in the, the living room of my uncle's house, and, and there in the living room was this gigantic box, size of a car, in the living room. 16th birthday, a box the size of a car. You know what she's thinking, right? And she opens it. I mean, she shakes it. They, they had traditions. Yeah, they, they knew how to do it. And it was heavy. She couldn't lift it. She opens the box, and it's filled with cinder blocks. No car. But there's another box inside. Okay, it's still a nice big box. And, and, and she repeated the process and went each one and finally got about ten boxes. And she's like, what in the world's going on? Until she finally had this little jewelry box. And she opened it, and in it was a key. And she looked, went outside, and, and there in front of the house is her car, her 16th birthday. And I remember the rejoicing that took place. I mean, there was screaming and running, and the car disappeared, and she disappeared, and fast. You know, I, I remember the young kid is like that's not right you shouldn't be going that fast and and but she was rejoicing it was incredible she was excited and i remember the rejoicing that's the word that's used here it is this idea of being overjoyed you ever hear the word overjoyed and think about what that means overjoyed the verb that he introduces us to and and which he's going to again use, in the, he uses it in the present tense. He's writing to an audience that's suffering. Perhaps they've just lost the Apostle Paul and they're in grief. Or they're in grief over their loved ones that are being persecuted. And he tells them to rejoice. And it's in the present tense. We rejoice today. He's not talking about someday when we're with Christ in heaven, we rejoice now. And this isn't just a concept of being joyful. The word that he uses here is this idea of being overjoyed, of being exceedingly joyful. And again, he addresses these people who are suffering, these elect exiles who have been grieved by various trials, these experiences of sadness, of distress, so they're temporary. And so he, he notes that they're, they are for a little while, but they still cause grief. And so what is it that we rejoice in? Number one, he's caused us to be born again. Two, he's, he's keeping our inheritance in heaven. And three, he is guarding you. For that inheritance the rejoicing is despite the grief we endure now we'll have the opportunity to explore that over the next couple weeks again pastor Begg tells a story of a gentleman who had been hospitalized suffering from brain cancer he was impaired deeply by it and the treatments that he was receiving were phenomenally daunting but his trust and his hope in Christ was such that it was striking to those who were caring for him. And one of the nurses in duty, on duty seeing this man wrote on his chart a critical comment. A, a critical comment. Mr. X this morning is inappropriately joyful. 
He is inappropriately joyful. What a wonderful testimony. Because the secular mind looks at that and says, there is no possibility of joy. You're dying, Mr. X. What do you mean you've had a good night? What do you mean it's a fine day? What do you mean? Well, you see, he has a hope that stands the test of time. He's been born again to a living hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Mr. X is not a moralist. He's not a religionist. He's not a self-help guru. He is a follower of Jesus Christ. And we now, if necessary, have been grieved by various trials. But what our God caused and what our God guards leads us to bless His name and to rejoice because in spite of the raw and the distressing nature of the troubles that we experience, we possess a living hope that is for all time and it supersedes the weight of anything in the present. Father in heaven, only you and your spirit could give to us such bold words through men like Peter, who himself had failed, who himself had experienced grief and walked away. Here's a man who knew despair, who gave up any ability that he had in himself. But you taught him the lesson that we read in Luke just a few moments ago. We saw in, in Luke a man who came before you and, and said, I, I'm not worthy. And other men who, who put their trust in themselves. And they did not walk away righteous, but the man who recognized his own sin, his own inadequacy, his own inability, who poured himself at your feet and asked for mercy on a sinner like him. He experienced it that day and received a living hope. I pray that you would help us to realize the realities of that hope that you have put within us. Might we keep our eyes focused on what you have done? Might we continue to keep in mind what you guard in us and for us? And might we continue to have an eternal perspective that would comfort us and give us the ability to rejoice even in the midst of horrible things for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name we pray.